This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When she talks about climate change, scientist Catherine Hayhoe has a powerful tool, her faith. Hayhoe is an evangelical Christian and director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. On her YouTube channel called Global Weirding, Hayhoe tackles thorny questions like this. Poor people in developing countries need fossil fuels to reach the standard of living we enjoy. It's completely unfair to tell them they can't, right? Well, Catherine Hayhoe is just in Colorado to help climate scientists here better communicate on what's often a polarizing topic. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. In a recent editorial for Science Magazine, you wrote that the most effective thing I've done is to let people know that I'm a Christian. It's essential to connect the impacts of a changing climate directly to what's already meaningful in one's life. And for many people, faith is central to who they are. Uh, would you give me an example of how that's been effective? Yes. So as scientists, we often have the reputation or the stereotype of being uh, godless liberal atheist tree huggers. And many of us certainly are. Um, but that means that for people who take their faith seriously and who have heard that climate is not changing or humans aren't responsible, it gives them an excuse to dismiss what scientists say. Whereas when I say, no, I share your faith, I believe, you know, pretty much the same things as you do, and I know that God's creation is telling us that the planet is warming and humans are responsible. That has a whole different impact because they can't dismiss me as being other. Do you modify your message or do you just merely introduce yourself as I'm one of you? On the science, absolutely, it's the same. It doesn't really matter whether we believe in this or that. A thermometer still tells us the same numbers. But you can't just stop by talking about the problem. You have to talk about why you care about it and what we can do to fix it. Why I care about a changing climate is because it disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable in this world who are already suffering from poverty and hunger and lack of access to clean water and other resources. And that connects directly to my faith. And then it leads us into talking about solutions that are consistent with the values that we have. But if I vote for politicians who want to abate climate change, I'm voting perhaps for pro-choice politicians or ones who believe in gay marriage uh, or ones who believe in many other things that are contrary to what I believe. Yes, you. I think you've hit the nail right on the head there. And that's why I appreciate the work of organizations like the Evangelical Environmental Network so much because they share with people how climate change is actually a pro-life issue. Life doesn't stop at birth. It continues all the way through to death. And if people really are pro-life, and if pro-life is what really matters to them, then they need to be against pollution. They need to be against climate change. They need to be against all of the things that disproportionately, again, affect people who don't have the resources to deal with them. So that's a way of perhaps affecting the mindset of the voters. How do you affect the mindset of the leaders? Hmm. Honestly, I think that that is harder because their mindset is not so much on what they think is true or not. It's on what they think will get them elected or not. And that is a completely different thing. There are many people who would say, sure, you know, climate change is real, but I'm not going to stand up and say that. Or, you know, I might say, yes, it's real, but I'm not going to do anything about it because that won't get me reelected. So, that's why solutions, I think, are so important, because if you can show the 
co-benefits, as we call it, of solutions, the fact that, for example, in Texas, where I live, wind energy supplies over 25,000 jobs. It is revitalizing small rural communities who are losing all their young people by providing new jobs and increasing the tax base. If you can show that there's solid short-term economic benefits to some of the solutions, then all of a sudden you have a whole different category of people on board. And a politician can say, you know, well, I'm not sure about this whole climate change thing, but I do know that wind energy is good for our community, so let's get behind it. And that's a completely different conversation. Now, you are very public about your religious beliefs, and I suspect that not all scientists, A, want to be public about their private lives, and B, may not be religious. Uh, They may be agnostic, or they may be atheist. Are there lessons in what you've learned about communicating the message of climate change for those who don't, uh, either one, share your religious values, or two, your openness? Yes, absolutely. The point is, is that we need to figure out how we can connect with people. And so for me, one of the most fundamental ways that I can connect with people, again, is is through my faith. But for others, it might be the simple fact that they live in the same community or that they're both parents or they might be members of the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club or they could be passionate skiers or birders or hikers. There's a million points of connection that we can make with people. Every single one of us, even scientists, we really are human. We have other interests outside the ivory tower. And it's a matter of connecting our heart to our head when we share with people. I was reading something from the late preacher Billy Graham. Let me quote it to you. People ask, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth again? Yes, I do. The Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again, and I don't see any other hope because we're heading towards a catastrophe in our world. Mm. And end quote. What do you say to people who, I don't know if the word is conflate the apocalyptic nature of climate change and the end times? Well, interestingly, in our Global Weirding series, which people can find on YouTube, the most popular episode we did was called, What Does the Bible Say About Climate Change? And this completely surprised me because all the other videos are about, you know, hurricanes or weather extremes. We did one video on what does the Bible say, and it addressed all of the most common religiously sounding myths that I get on a weekly and sometimes even daily basis. And one of those is the one you just mentioned. If the world is going to end anyways, why should we care? In fact, some people would even go further and say, bring it on. This is moving us faster in the right right direction. Right. Yes. And they do. I hear this all the time. So to respond to uh, objections that people think are based on the Bible, science isn't going to help us with that. We actually have to go to where they think this is coming from, the Bible. And what's fascinating, of course, is that human nature has not really changed much in 2,000 years. And in the New Testament, there was one church, and you know, the Apostle Paul went around traveling and visiting and writing to all these early churches back in the day. There was one church who said, okay, well, if the world's going to end anyway, we'll just quit our jobs, lay around, twiddle our fingers, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because the world's going to end soon. And the Apostle Paul wrote to them, and he said, essentially, this is paraphrasing, but there's, there's no one like the Apostle Paul to tear a strip off someone. He said, you know, get a job, support your family, care for the widows and the poor. You have a job to do here and now. And again, that is central to why we care about a changing climate, because it is affecting real people today. And there's a biblical message, you say, a biblical underpinning there. 
It is. So all the way from Genesis, where it talks about how humans have responsibility or dominion over creation. And again, you know, people have taken the word dominion and distorted it. But if you look at a CEO who has dominion over the, a company, and that CEO runs the company into the ground and just leaves it a smoking ruin, we wouldn't respect somebody who exercised dominion in that way. So whether you call it dominion or responsibility or stewardship, it's taking care of and being responsible for the growth and the well-being of this planet in Genesis 1. And then it goes all the way through the Bible till the end in Revelation, where it talks about how God will destroy those who destroy the earth. So there are themes woven not just throughout the Bible, but throughout every major world religion, talking about caretaking or stewardship of nature or creation, and also talking about caring for those who are less fortunate than us. It seems, Catherine, that there's been a a 180 in Washington. I mean, in, in 2016, you were part of a conversation with President Obama and Leonardo DiCaprio about climate change at the White House. Flash forward to recent weeks when President Trump announced that he'll relax carbon standards on coal-fired power plants. Uh, of course, he's also started to withdraw from the, the Paris Climate Agreement. Is the country more divided now than ever on climate change? It seems as though it is with every news report that we read and every story that we see. But when I go out and talk to people, we are starting to see it change. Why? Because today, no matter where we live in the United States, in North America, we can start to see evidence of a changing climate. Some good friends of ours are absolutely hardcore at rejecting the science of climate change. And my husband's even, you know, confronted them saying, look, you've known Catherine for years. Do you think she's an idiot or do you think she's lying to you? And they just, that does not make a dent. But these people who are farmers and they're very in touch with the land, even they will say, you know, it's really been a crazy set of years. As long as our family has farmed this land, we have not seen these types of wild swings ever. And whether it's stronger hurricanes, whether it's crazy wildfires, whether it's shifts in the season where we see trees flowering and birds arriving earlier in the year than they should, we're seeing the evidence of our own eyes around us. And that change in opinion is happening today. The majority of people in the United States do agree climate is changing and humans are responsible. And especially among younger people, it's an overwhelming majority that say, yeah, of course this is real. Let's stop arguing over science that's been around for 150 years and let's get going with fixing this problem. But as a climate scientist, though, I know that every year that goes by without meaningful action to reduce our carbon emissions means that there is an extra amount of damage that is going to occur that is not reversible. It's like smoking. When's the best time to stop smoking? Today. If you can't stop today, you know, next week. (laughs) But, but, But the more we smoke, the greater the damage we accumulate. What challenges do you face being a woman and a climate scientist at this moment in history? Have you faced more personal attacks, I wonder? Well, just to be clear, as soon as any scientist is willing to stick their head out of the ivory tower and say climate is changing and humans are responsible, they will get attacked. That is clear. But the more we stick our head out, the more frequently we are attacked. And unfortunately, if you look at the statistics of who comes against us in social media and emails and blogs online, the overwhelming majority of people are male. In fact, they've even published research papers. One was called Cool White Dudes about how people who reject the science on climate change are predominantly older white men. 
And so when you have a man, um, you know, coming against a woman saying you're wrong, you get situations like I ran into uh, today on Twitter, where an anonymous person said, you're not willing to learn. And I said, well, do you have the experience to teach me? If you have some research papers you've published, I'd I'd love to see them. (laughs) No, I don't. But you need to learn from me. Where would the idea come from that somebody with no formal education and no professional experience somehow knows more than somebody who has a PhD and 100 publications in the field? It comes from this amazing phenomena. It's called the Dunning-Kruger syndrome that is even stronger when it comes to men explaining to women how they don't know what they're talking about. So not only that, but a lot of the attacks that I and other women get have a strong gender component to it. You know, my last name is Hayho, so there's easy jokes on that to do with women's, women. Mm-hmm. Um, there's people who say things about your looks, about your appearance, about how arrogant you are, that you could presume to tell a man something when he disagrees with you. So it, it really is tough. And unfortunately, the rise of the current presidency has emboldened people to be even less courteous and less civil online than they were before. But at the same time, you have to take heart from this. And you might say, well, that's a very Pollyanna way to look at it. But you have to take heart from the attacks because would you be attacked if they didn't think you were being effective? I don't think so. How how do you maintain any sort of, as you say, Pollyanna-ishness? Is that, can that be a word, Pollyanna-ishness? Yes, yes. Okay, we'll, we'll make that the noun. How can you maintain any kind of, of, of optimism, of brightness, when you look at the science and when you see from year to year the changes in the world? I mean, I, I think of the recent New York Times piece, The Decade We Could Have Saved Earth, and, and how scorched earth that felt after I, I read it. Uh, where, where does your optimism come from if it's there? My optimism does not come from observing the changes that are happening in the climate system because every new study that comes out almost we feel like it's happening, you know, sooner or faster or to a greater extent than we thought before. That is not where the hope is. As a climate scientist, I personally study the future and I do see that there is a significant difference in the future that we can expect over our lifetime and those of our children, depending on the choices we make now. So when I look for hope, and you have to look for it, hope is not going to find you. You have to go out and look for hope. And I do that actively on a daily basis. And here's where I find the hope. I find it in people who are taking actions from small to big. I find it in solutions that are ingenious and incredible and far beyond anything I ever imagined. Oh, give, give us an example of a person or an ingenious solution. Leave us with a little bit of a nugget of hope. Yes. Well, I'll give you a small example. I live in the second most conservative town in the entire U.S., Lubbock, Texas. I go to the Lubbock Women's Club, which is, you know, the conservative bastion of the junior league of Lubbock, Texas. And we talk about how all these wind farms are being put up on people's land and how they love them and how this this older woman who looked, she was about probably about 85, came up to me afterwards and she said, I am so excited they are putting in some of these turbines on my land and on my neighbor Mabel's land. We're going to take our sandwiches and our stools and we're going to sit out there and we're going to watch it. I'll take pictures and I'll send them to you. I am so excited about this. And then you hear about crazy solutions like uh, the ones that they're looking at to actually take carbon dioxide out of the air and turn it into fuel. Or the fact that there's the first negative carbon power plant in Iceland that creates energy and then turns the resulting CO2 into stones that you can use to build with. There's stuff going on that you wouldn't even imagine. And that's why we need everybody on deck. This isn't a climate scientist thing. 
yes, we're good at diagnosing the problem, but we need the engineers, we need the business people, we need the investors, we need the people who are good at communicating this through the written word, through art, through music as well. We need everybody on board to give us a vision of the future that we want, because that's what's going to give us hope. Do you pray about this, Catherine? How could I not? Would you share what your prayers are? I, I pray for specific people. I feel that, um, that God often acts uh, very quietly in, in changing our minds on things that we might not be willing to change them on. And so I often pray for specific people, that their eyes would be open to various concerns or to certain possibilities. And um, I pray for various efforts that are going on, that they would be encouraged and they would, they would have what they need to keep on going. Because hope versus fear is really the situation that we're in today. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Catherine Hayhoe directs the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She's also an evangelical Christian who uses her faith to communicate about climate change. She was just in Colorado to share what she's learned with scientists here. Something keeps CU Boulder professor Lori Peak up at night. It's the idea that schools aren't prepared for a natural disaster, that if a tornado or an earthquake struck, children would die preventable deaths. So for the last few years, she's been working with a team of experts on a guidebook to help schools around the country be better prepared. Peak directs CU's Natural Hazard Center. She joins us from Boulder. Hi, Lori. Hi, Ryan. Give me an example of a vulnerability that would touch a lot of Colorado schools when it comes to natural disasters. Schools in Colorado, like schools across the nation, experience a variety of threats from natural hazards. And so in our state, our schools are especially, some of our schools are especially vulnerable to flooding as one of the hazards that we experience here. And as many of us has been have been reminded this week in particular, as we come upon the five-year anniversary of the Colorado floods. Yeah. So schools here are vulnerable to flooding. They're also vulnerable to wildfire. Several years ago, a child care center in Windsor was actually flattened in a tornado. And so we have a variety of different natural hazards risks that we face in this state. And this guidebook that you mentioned that we've been working on is about trying to draw people's attention to those risks, but also to get people really thinking about what we might do to confront the threats that we face and to do something about it. I guess your thought is that in the face of floods and wildfire and tornadoes, schools are not as prepared as they could be. What's an example of that when you look around? Yeah, that that's right. So uh, several years ago when we started working on this guidebook, and I'm a sociologist and our team was composed of other social scientists, risk communication experts, engineers, architects, and others who care a lot about school safety. That was exactly the question that we asked at the, at the start of this project, which was, what are the natural hazards that we confront in this nation? But then we also wanted to know what is the state? of our nation's schools in terms 
terms of school safety. And so we were both thinking about existing building stock. So what's the quality of the the school buildings that already exist out there? But also we were trying to make sure that we would provide guidance for local and state level leaders when it comes to building new schools. Mm. But I will say one of the, the big concerns that really drove the creation of this guidebook was the recognition that there are many schools across this nation that are simply not safe when it comes to natural hazards. There are unreinforced masonry building schools that will be badly damaged or may even collapse in the face of an earthquake. We know that there are over 6,000 schools across the nation that are located in special flood hazard areas. There are schools all across Tornado Alley that do not have access to tornado safe rooms or tornado shelters. And so there was a lot of bad news that really drove the front end of this project, which was having to confront that recognition that there are so many school buildings across this nation that really aren't safe in the ways that I think that school children deserve and that parents might actually expect. Well, I I don't want to just be fear-mongering here. So if I'm a parent listening to this, that's reason if not to panic, to to perhaps lose sleep myself. What would you suggest if uh, a parent is listening or a school leader or an educator uh, for how to handle this, for perhaps how to make a change, especially at a time when schools in this state in particular are strapped for cash? Yeah, Ryan, thank you so much for saying that because that actually was one of the most promising and hopeful things about working on this project was this recognition that natural hazards threat is all around us. And as we're seeing this increase in the number and frequency and intensity of natural hazards events, it can generate a lot of fear and can lead to people feeling frozen or uncertain about what to do. And so the school safety guidebook that we were working on was really about exactly what you just said about trying to prompt people to think about these threats, but then also to immediately turn to ask those questions about what can we actually do about this. And there are lots of things that that we can do. And so some of the guidebook is about actually making buildings safer. I am so proud that we live in a nation full of scientists and engineers who have done the great work to help us to know more about strong building codes and the difference they can make with with building safety and with land use planning to make sure we put schools in safe places. And so some of the guidebook is about, again, what are the questions we can ask about is my school safe? And if my school isn't safe, how can we move forward with a short or even a longer term plan to try to ensure that our school facilities are safe? And so some of the book really is about the building itself, because if the building isn't safe, no amount of planning is really going to matter or or isn't going to matter as much as we would hope. And so some of it's about building safety and the questions we can ask, the funding mechanisms we might use to help make our building safe. But some of the guidebook is also about that crucial planning activity. How do we 
go through steps to make sure our school children and our school staff are prepared. How do we plan for recovery if a disaster does happen? And so there's a lot of different types of guidance in the book, everything from no cost or very low cost actions that can be taken quickly, as well as recommendations for much longer term planning to ensure that we might move closer to that goal of having a safe school for every child. Now, this grows out of your work after Hurricane Katrina, how years later, kids and families were still reeling from displacements, often after homes and schools were destroyed. Of course, I can't help but think now about Hurricane Florence barreling towards the Carolinas. I imagine that's on your mind as well. Absolutely. And we just uh, witnessed the 13-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And even with more than a decade past, we continue to see the ramifications of that disaster in young people's lives. Well over 300,000 children were displaced from their schools in Hurricane Katrina. Even years after the storm, many of those children were still displaced were still not in safe and stable home or school environments. And that is something that has really, really driven so much of my post-Katrina work and really inspired me to want to say yes to work on this guidebook because I know that we can do better. Schools now have guidance where they can put in place educational continuity plans. And so if a disaster does strike, schools can have this planning in place in advance to try to keep school children together and to try to make sure that their education is not disrupted or is disrupted as little as possible after a disaster so that children can do their number one job, which is to learn. So this is about planning on the front end for sure and preparing for disaster. I suppose to some extent this is about drills, making sure kids know what to do, educators know what to do. But this is also about uh, ensuring that there is a clear process in place after disaster strikes so that schools can, as you say, ensure the continuity of a child's education. I know that that came up particularly after the Colorado floods five years ago, which hit lions especially hard. And I just, in the last couple of seconds here, I think lions did not have that kind of continuity plan in place. Is that right? Actually, I'm happy to say that lions did have an educational, yes. And in fact, about six months before the Colorado floods and before lions was devastated in the 2013 floods, the St. Vrain School District had actually updated their continuity of operations plan and they had gone through this really wonderful planning process, bringing together leaders with the school district, with the local community and surrounding communities. And so when Lyons was devastated in that flood, and I'm here drawing on actually my graduate student, Jennifer Tobin's dissertation, where she actually tracked this. And what she found was that their advanced planning, what then happened was they were able to keep together over 700 students from Lyons Elementary School and Lyons Middle School and High School. And within nine days, of lions being 
terribly flooded, being completely evacuated, they were able to start school again. And almost all of those school children, which means also the families and the teachers, yeah, that were cohesion able to stay was together. Maintained. Lori, thank you yes. so much for being with us. That's Lori Peak of CU Boulder. She is co-writing the new guidebook, Safer, Stronger, Smarter, A Guide to Improving School Natural Hazard Safety. She says schools across the country are unprepared for natural disasters. The September 11th terrorist attacks were 17 years ago, and yet the memory of that day is still fresh for Lisa Guilford of Denver. She's a former Colorado film commissioner, and she's originally from New York City. She was there working on a television project on 9-11. Guilford was living in Greenwich Village and shares her recollections. We were all out. When I say all, there's a bunch of people in New York City in Greenwich Village who went out every morning and walked their dogs. Including you and your dog. My big dog, Leaf. And Leaf is a search and rescue, but he did water rescue, just as a hobby here in Colorado. So there we were in New York, and I was walking with some chums down the West Side Highway. It was a beautiful walk. So I said, let's walk down to the World Trade Center because the Orchid Show had just closed on Sunday. And I had been there in their gorgeous glass atrium of the World Trade Center. It was The sky was so blue and crisp. and We heard a buzzing and we looked up and we saw a plane. And from where we were standing, it looked like a private plane, like a trick plane. I can't explain it to you. It was so far up. So I immediately called on my cell phone my husband in Denver. And of course, I woke him up because it was like 620 or whatever. And I said, oh my God, Jim, there is a plane that is trying to do a trick between the towers. as some kind of stunt. And as I was on the phone with him, it crashed. It hit the building. I screamed, oh, my God, it hit the building. And nobody moved. We all just stood there like our feet were in cement. And within maybe three seconds, we heard the first siren. And things started falling out of the sky like little pieces of cinder. And all of a sudden, the 6th Precinct, that's the T-shirt I'm wearing, the 6th Precinct, which was the Greenwich Village Police Precinct, They came up, and everybody knows everybody in Greenwich Village who lives there. It's a village, and I'd grown up there. And they came up to me, and they said, Lisa, stand back, stand back. And so we all kind of moved back, and they looked at Leaf, my dog, and they said, oh, Leaf does search and rescue. And I said, yes, and I'll never forget this. This was like 10 minutes after it happened. One of the cops said to me, does he do cadaver work? And I said, no, only live scent. And they said, okay, I don't think we'll be needing him, is what the cop said to me. Guilford remembers the shock of a second plane hitting. And there's an image a short time later she'll never forget. I said to the people I was walking with, oh, look, they're surrendering, they're throwing napkins, white napkins, out the windows, and it was very, very high. And somebody said, those aren't napkins. They were people. And that really got me. 
we all were in shock, and we started walking, and we found ourselves in a group of people. Some had torn stockings. Some of the gals had torn stockings, and they were just leaving, walking up the West Side Highway. There was, you know, tons of people walking, and Giuliani had, at that point, closed everything down. No subways, no buses. You were literally on an island. And these people had to walk home to New Jersey, but we stood there offering water, bathrooms if they needed them, anything we could. And we, it was very confused, but in an orderly way, if that's possible. It was very quiet. Everybody was very quiet. And we still didn't know that it was a terrorist attack. We thought it was some horrible accident. By 4 o'clock that afternoon, a bunch of us from the village where we lived, we made this big sign that said, thank you. Because by that point, the streams of fire trucks and emergency vehicles, the cacophony of sounds was just amazing. And we went out across from my building on West 11th and stood on the Hudson River side, and we held up this sign, thank you. Before nightfall, we all were settling into, what did you hear? What did you hear? And people just were going to first responders or whatever, and they said, you have to stay where you are. And there was food in the grocery stores at that point. We had electricity. And so we thought, okay, well, we'll stay here for a day or two. Well, the day or two turned out to be, I think, two weeks. So by the third or fourth day, there are a lot of restaurants in Greenwich Village. And by the third day, there was no food. And more importantly, there was no New York Times. And so we would designate people we didn't even know. We would give them $2 to go up to 23rd Street and stand online to get a newspaper. And if you wanted to leave the district, the lockdown, you had to have your ID with you or a bill that said you lived below. So we were really isolated. And it was interesting because by then the restaurants had signs out. Um, we don't have much, but whatever we have, you can have. And people were just going into restaurants and nobody was really hungry. They just wanted to talk. It was, They became meeting places. Three weeks later, we were just coming out of lockdown, and the sky was smoky, and there was a sweet kind of acrid smell. It wasn't a terrible smell. It didn't hurt your eyes. It was just a smell. And in the elevator, I ran into an old man, and this guy said, I know that smell very well. And I said, really, what is it? And he said, it's a smell from my childhood. And he rolled up his arm and showed me his Auschwitz prisoner number. For the next, I guess, three months, CNN was really our only immediate, instantaneous information, and I left the TV on. I just left it on, and I don't know why. It was just I had to leave something on, and to this day, I sleep with the TV on. It's not comforting, certainly not now. Wallowing in bad news, how could that be a comfort? But I just started sleeping with the TV on.
Lisa Guilford of Denver, a native New Yorker, remembering September 11, 2001. She took pictures that day, and we'll post a few of them to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. In a new novel, a 16-year-old boy from Colorado Springs, who appears to be a white supremacist, confesses to murder in the death of a gay man. It seems like an open-and-shut case, but a top-notch defense attorney sees it differently. Her kind of case is written by Jeannie Weiner of Boulder. She's a former criminal defense attorney herself, who spent a career on cases like the one portrayed in this book. And hi, Jeannie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You had a successful career. You were part of a landmark gay rights case, which challenged Amendment 2 in Colorado. It would have prevented cities and towns in this state from recognizing homosexuals as a protected class. I wonder, did you stop being a lawyer because you wanted to instead create art? Well, um, I I have had really a couple of passions in my life, and um, I've wanted to be a writer since I was five years old. And uh, back then, I wrote poetry, and I was very influenced by the Three Stooges. Okay. So a lot of their imagery was in my early poetry. And uh, I always thought that at some point in my life, I would be a writer. But I also um, ended up being a criminal defense attorney, and I really loved that, too. Um, it was an honor and a privilege to represent people and try to help them or save them or at least steer them in a better direction than they were going. But um, I wrote on the side uh, all all the time that I was a lawyer, and uh, it became kind of increasingly clear as I was getting older that at some point I did need to quit and write full-time. Okay, your main character is a formidable female attorney in Denver named Lee Isaacs. She is a Taekwondo master... She's about to turn 60. What's her frame of mind when we meet her in the book? Well, her frame of mind is she is unhappily contemplating her upcoming 60th birthday. And maybe for the first time in her life, she is wondering if she still has exactly what it takes to do the very best job that she expects of herself. She's a perfectionist. She has a lot of pride uh, in her work and, um, and, 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 and feels that if she can't be the very best at being a karateka as well as a criminal defense attorney, then maybe she doesn't want to be there at all. And about a year before the book takes place, she has actually lost a high-profile murder case. And so um, she is uncharacteristically hesitant to take this one at the beginning of the book because she's just a little bit worried about her uh, instincts and about her uh, her winning touch and whether or not it may be on its way out. The loss of that earlier case is not the only loss in her life, by the way. She's lost someone very dear to her, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Is Lee Isaacs a somewhat idealized version of you? Um, or, or maybe unidealized version. <laughs> well, you know, uh, my publisher had me answer some questions and answers for the uh, press kit, and one of the questions was whether I identified with any of the uh, characters in the book. And I wrote, "Well, of course, but I have a lot more friends than Lee." 
And, um, <laughs> Are and, you a nicer person than this protagonist? I don't know that I'm a nicer person. Um, we both definitely tried cases in the same way. And uh, I certainly do have a lot in common with Lee. But besides having more friends, I'm probably much more emotionally effusive than she is. And, um, and maybe more melancholy. Um, but I do have, a, I do have, I did have a lot of the same fears that she had about getting older and, and, and wondering when it was the right time to stop being a lawyer. Uh, when was the right time to leave the party before, you know, being swept out with the garbage. Um, and, um, and like a, a lot of older attorneys, I was starting to think about um, when was the optimal time to quit? Did you make the right decision? You know, I did. Okay. I, I actually, um, I saw that the party was winding down. I grabbed my coat, I thanked my hosts, and I left. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new novel, Her Kind of Case. It is set in Colorado. Its author is Jeannie Weiner, and she's a former criminal defense attorney, as is her protagonist, Lee Isaacs. So as we said earlier, Lee takes on this murder case. Even though Jeremy, the 16-year-old, has confessed, his clothes have the victim's blood. And it made me think about how criminal defense attorneys, especially who charge an arm and a leg like Lee, go about choosing clients. Help us understand how you made that decision. Was it all gut instinct on whether to take a case? Well, um, one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, Lee tells the defendant's aunt that uh, she'll take the case if she feels like there's a fit. Yeah. And, uh, and a fit is, is when she has a sense that there's, there'll, be a, there'll be at least some possibility of connecting with the client in some authentic way so that ultimately she can build up a little bit of trust so that the client will ultimately take her advice. And you do have to have some kind of real connection with your client because ultimately at some point you may be advising them to take a deal for a very long time in prison or you may be telling them to take a chance and go to trial and risk, uh, if you lose, uh, a long sentence. Lee's client has such a chip on his shoulder at first, and he's so unwelcoming to her. Did you often face that where you had to get past a sort of tough exterior and see the possibility of the person within? That happened over and over again. And um, and it was, in my opinion, um, the best criminal defense attorneys really know and have learned how to find something to love or like or pity or empathize with in their clients. And if they can't, then they won't have that connection. They won't have client control and their clients won't trust them. So often I would start out in a pretty tough relationship with a client. I'd have nothing in common with them. And in this case, I, I, I picked a, a, a protagonist who is, you know, approaching her 60th birthday. She's Jewish. She's a liberal uh, uh, attorney. And uh, she's going to have to try to connect with a 16-year-old skinhead. Not easy. Not easy. And, and uh, you, the people you had to find that humanity in had often done really awful things. Um, I mean, it's just that's, that's that simple. That, that really is true. 
But um, I would often separate what people had done or had been accused of doing from who they were. And I also understood that a lot of the people that I represented had backgrounds or bad things happened to them that could explain a lot of the reasons why they may have done what they were accused of. And that's certainly true for the young man in this book, Her Kind of Case. There's a lot of repartee that goes on between the main character, Lee, and the district attorney who she's up against in the trial. They have a history, and they seem to anticipate the arguments the other will make. How accurate is that portrayal? I mean, I have to think when you practice law in one place for long enough, you get to know the characters well enough, the real-life characters, that you might be able to anticipate. I think that, you know, a lot of people have asked me, was it really that fun or that um, challenging to relate to the district attorneys who were on the opposite side of your cases? And I would have to say that there were a number of uh, prosecutors in Boulder that I really liked a lot and, um, and I enjoyed sparring with. And, of course, I still did everything I could possibly do to um, – uh, get my clients uh, the very best deal or at least to explain um, why they behaved the way they did or to, you know, win their cases. But um, it just depends on the jurisdiction. Obviously, the prosecutors in Boulder had much more of a sense of humor and were a little bit more like me than, let's say, the prosecutors in Golden uh, when I was a public defender for five years there in the early 80s. Um, they were not exactly humorless, although some of them were, and they were a lot tougher to relate to. And I had to kind of use the same skills that I often use with my clients. I had to find something about even the prosecutors prosecutors that I could relate to and, and find common cause with. Uh, well, I'm sure you aren't privy to the details of the case. We recently did a story about a 16-year-old girl who's been charged in Denver with first-degree murder in the death of her 7-year-old nephew. Hypothetically, in about the minute we have left, how would you as a defense attorney approach a case like that? Well, my goodness, that sounds like a really terrible case. Um, I'm going to assume that they're going to try her as an adult if they can. Indeed. You cer- certainly would look at the uh, psychological um, uh, background first. That kind of screams out for uh, uh, a psychiatric evaluation. Um, you do an incredibly thorough job of uh, looking at, you know, the whole family and the background and everything about her life. And you would just, um, you would just pursue it and be dogged uh, with your investigation as well as the psychological aspects until you could really figure out what it was that uh, impelled somebody to uh, behave the way they're accusing her of behaving. And all of that rests on the same ability you've been describing throughout the conversation, which is to see beyond the action and into the life behind it. Thanks so much for being with us, Jeannie. I appreciate your time. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Novelist Jeannie Weiner has written Her Kind of Case. It's about a 16-year-old boy charged with murder in the death of a gay man. Weiner worked as a criminal defense attorney in Boulder for more than three decades. Thanks for spending time with us. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. 